The number of the young men in Monty Python's Flying Circus went on to achieve reputations in other areas. John Cleese created Faulty Towers, for instance. But Michael Palin's later work has possibly had the most versatility. His TV shows and books have seen him travel around the world full circle, pole to pole, and in 80 days. He's written Into Iraq, The North Korea Journey, Erebus. There have been editions of his personal diaries and an account of the Python years. Michael is 80 now, and he's Sir Michael these days. He's going to talk to us from Edinburgh when he's on, where he's on his book tour, and it's all a long way since the madcap weirdness of his classic comedy sketches. Two of the most famous being a couple of them that followed one another in one Monty Python episode, The Dead Parrot and The Lumberjack Song. That parrot is definitely deceased. And when I bought it not half an hour ago, you assured me that its total lack of movement was due to it being tired and shagged out after a long squall. Oh, he's pining for the field. Pining for the fjords? What kind of talk is that? Look, why did it fall flat on its back the moment I got it home? Oh, well, the Norwegian blue prefers keeping on its back. Beautiful plumage. If you hadn't nailed it to the perch, it would be pushing up the daisies. It's rung down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. Listen, I didn't want to work in a pet shop. I wanted to be a lumberjack. With my best girl by my side, we'd sing, sing, sing. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. Michael Palin in full flight 50 years ago and he's not slowing down. A new travel show is in the works to somewhere in Africa, but that's under wraps. And his new book is called Great Uncle Harry, A Tale of War and Empire. Harry was a young man shot by a sniper at the Somme in the First World War. Before the war, he was footloose in his life until he came to New Zealand. It was at the top of the South Island that Harry settled happily. But then came the war. He joined up with the New Zealand division and saw action first at Gallipoli. This is in the book. The Nelson Mail, as it reported on the departure of the young men going off to war, was also running ads in the same newspaper for the new Edison phonograph and the Columbia graphophone. So the world was turning, but at the same time, as all Kiwis know, these blokes didn't realise what was waiting for them on the other side of it. It seemed like a fine adventure and likely to be over by Christmas. It's all in this book by Sir Michael Palin. Hello, Michael. Hello there, Jim. How are you? I'm very well and, and all the better for getting you on the programme. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be sort of in New Zealand, but not in New Zealand, you know, because there's so much of... New Zealand in the book. <laughs> yes, well, you were in New Zealand for the book. Okay, uh, before we get to the book, to quote from a Times of London reporter who interviewed you a few years back, he said, confronted by the insurmountable cliff face of Michael Palin's niceness, you struggled, <laughs> you struggled to find the right question. And his question was, what makes you angry? My question is, what makes you the most sad? Because there is the great sadness of war in this book, and I know you cry in movies, mm. you know. What is it that most makes you most sad? Uh, I think it's, it's you know, um, well, loss of any kind, really. But also, um, I feel that, it's, it's to do with age, it's to do with time passing, things are different. The way you did things 
Um, you look back from 30 years, 30 years back, and things all seemed better then. You know, before social media and everything, I can feel that that sort of um, that that sort of loss. But I think that's to do that's to do with age. That's to do with not adjusting quite so well to the modern world, um, and adjusting things change. You know, sort of craftsmanship being replaced, you know, standardization, um, newspapers being replaced by, uh, by phones, all that sort of stuff. That makes me a bit sad. But, yeah, I get I get sad anyway. I'm afraid I, early in this year, I lost my wife yes. in, uh, in May. And, uh, well, that, I know about sadness now. <laughs> yes, you do know about sadness now. Um, uh, that must have been a terrible blow. Uh, but at the end of her life, at the end of Helen's life, you told the Times that you'd never seen her happier in a way. I found that quite remarkable to read. Well, yes, because she'd been she'd been in suffering from pain after an operation on her knee about five or six years ago, and this pain would not go, nor could it be alleviated. And uh, so this generally affected her health, and then she had various issues which made her um, lose her independence, particularly after she was diagnosed with kidney failure and had to have dialysis. And, uh, you know, that was keeping her going, but for a life that she didn't want. She, she was a very independent woman. She didn't want to just carry on with people helping her across the room every time and cooking every meal for her and helping her across the road. Um, so in the end, she decided, um, and we all agreed, you know, that she would stop the dialysis. And uh, that was her decision taken by us as well and i think having made that brave decision in the last of 10 days she was happy because she well because they were able to give her uh, more than the usual amount of drugs so she was without pain she was being looked after in a wonderful hospice the family were all around and she would not have to face a life of um, uh, total dependence on others anymore and and pain as well so i think you know in a way she knew um, it was a relief, <laughs> and it helped us to bear, bear it too. What a time, though. What a time. Um, these are questions I was going to get to later, but, I mean, how are your own heart problems now? You seem, you seem from the outside as fit as a fiddle again. Yes, I had um, issues with two valves, which had to be um, replaced or one had to be tightened up. And once they had dealt with that, it was absolutely fine. I felt much better. I was less uh, less breathless, and um, I felt perfectly fit. Touch wood. I'm touching the table on which this uh, laptop is resting at the moment <laughs> <laughs> to say uh, things are going things are going fine. But um, you know, you get older, and you're aware that things get a bit creakier. The the machinery gets a little bit rusty, but. So far, so good. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm okay. I'm very pleased to hear it. You never met your great uncle Harry, of course. What happened to him? You know, I guess to cut the longer story short, because the longer story's in the book. But what happened to him in the war? Um, well, as you know, um, Harry emigrated to New Zealand, um, joined up um, with the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. And 12th Nelson Regiment, um, and went to Europe. And instead of going, as he had hoped, nearer home to Western Europe, he ended up in Gallipoli. And uh, as I say, spent four months 
in Gallipoli, escaped without a scratch, which was utterly remarkable, really, at that time. And um, was then transferred to France and fought at the Somme. He managed to get his wish. He went near a home and was able to have, um, you know, eight days leave back in um, in Tunbridge in in Kent. You know, it's very sort of English background and all that, but about, you know, uh, 100 miles away, they were killing each other in the trenches. Mm. He went back to fight, took part in the last big assault by the New Zealand forces um, in at the end of the Battle of the Somme in 1916, and that's where he was killed. The backstory to that, he had a public school education. His dad was an Oxford Don, but he was restless. He was a lost soul, Harry, when he found himself in New Zealand at one point in Canvas Town, Michael. Yes, uh, this is. I mean, a lot of a lot of this is hi- hypothetical. I'm not. I don't have exact proof of everything that was going through his mind at the time. Although I do have his war diaries, um, where almost every day he made an entry in his diary, so you get some idea of how he looked at the world. But clearly, uh, from the research I've done. Um, he yes, he he couldn't find the right place. He he wasn't sort of connected with the the the, the, the family sort of conventional career path, which was university and then getting married and having children and becoming a doctor like his, bro- his brother did. Harry didn't seem to fit into anything like that. He tried jobs where he was under managers. He didn't like that. He obviously didn't really like authority. Um, he never made much money. I mean, when he died, he left seventy-eight pounds of his entire um, estate. But he, he, the decision to go to New Zealand in nineteen twelve, I think was. Uh, I feel that was one of the best decisions he made because it was his own decision. Um, it didn't cost much. It didn't cost the family much. He wasn't having to join a company or take something. It's sort of corporate job or anything like that. He went off to become a farmhand and uh, ended up in Canvas Town, um, as you know, near Blenheim. Mm. And I think those were the, those were happy years for him there. I think he felt he was with he was with his mates, and he was a he was a he was obviously like the man who liked the camaraderie of being with friends. And I think he was well looked after by Ted Healy, who was a farmer who had hired him. And uh, yes, I think that those those two or three years he spent in New Zealand before the war um, were the happiest times. And happy because he had made the decision to do what he wanted to do rather than what his parents or his family or the country felt he ought to be doing. And you wonder, well, you wonder the same thing, why he didn't stay and make a good life for himself in New Zealand and whether he would have come back here and become a Kiwi yes. after the war had he had he lived. He's mm. he's brave. I mean, he sounds matter of fact in his diaries mm. uh, diaries about the Gallipoli landing at Anzac Cove and the proximity of snipers. He even goes swimming with shells falling nearby. Yeah. The, the, it is so interesting when you write about Gallipoli. Do you think that somehow in war you can develop a casual bravery that might not be evident in peacetime? Because they seem to the Kiwis. They really did. Um... I mean, all the people who took part in the war, I suppose, had to accept that this is uh, something they were swept up into. Um, there were very few deserters, which always 
surprise me, considering what they were going through. But I think what kept Harry going and um, his fellow New Zealanders was um, they had a they had a pride in fighting for the New Zealand Army, which was one of the smaller armies, but uh, considered quite highly by the top brass and sent into attacks and assaults. But also, he felt he was doing it for his friends. I think this was Harry's motivation. It wasn't about strategy. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about what sort of ammunition they were all given. He wasn't really... Um, it wasn't wasn't someone who analysed anything too much. He just was there with his friends trying to do the best for them. And I think probably that might be the attitude that gets you through. Uh, if you overanalyze and you worry and you think, oh gosh, if, I'm, if I run across that bit of land there, I'm going to get killed or whatever, mm. you know, that, that might just grind you to a halt. And he kept going. And his diary shows how he's continually moving behind the lines bringing bodies down, um, wounded down to the ships on the shore, carrying ammunition up to the um, artillery, that the artillery positions. He's always on the go. And I think that's just because he feels he's with mates he likes and respects. And when I'm always touched by in the book, when, when he does describe assaults, and he does it very well, he always writes down the names of the people who have been killed Mm. And I think that's very indicative of his loyalty to friends and the personal feeling he, he gets when when friends are killed. That, that's, that's really very, the down-to-earth feeling. He was doing it for his mates. Yeah, it's very poignant in the book. Michael Palin is with us, <laughs> Great Uncle Harry, A Tale of War and Empire. And just to move on, because we necessarily have to, I guess, I want to ask you about other stuff. You've walked where Great Uncle Harry died, haven't you? Yes, yeah, yeah, I know the field, um, the, the patch of land which he crossed and where he was killed, yes. But he was in a foxhole, I think, um, or a bomb hole, which you couldn't quite identify, could you? you? I bet you wished you knew the exact pinpoint where he died. No, I mean, where it is now is just sort of uh, rolling agricultural land, yeah. crops growing, it's all been filled in now. So um, where he died, I can't see the bomb crater in which he would have uh, sheltered um, with Sergeant um, Gridley, who then uh, attested that Harry stood up and was shot instantly through the head. Mm. So, yeah, I, 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 know, I know the patch of land. I know the sort of the, the few um, uh, metres where he would have. You know, met his end. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, you can't see much now. It's a bit of a cliche of a question, but how did you feel when you walked across that field? I was able to feel what it must have been like to run across what's now an ordinary field up to what seems just a, a low a ridge of land and feel that you're just being fired at all the time. Someone wanted to kill you as you crossed that land. And uh, all the things I'd read about the First World War, how people felt as they emerged from the trenches and just ran and didn't think about anything else. They just ran. That's what they were doing. It's a very primal thing. Um, and that, that that's where he, he never got to that. He never got to the top of the ridge, which is not far away from where I was walking. I felt that quite deeply. That war is... <sighs> I mean, as an, as an example of the futility of war, the utter stupidity of war, that war seems to embody it more than 
any other, really. I mean, as a failing of the species, you know what I mean, the Great War. The, it's, there seems to be yeah. more horror in it. I don't know why. Then There's plenty of horror in other wars, but we seem to single that one out. I think it was because so much of the fighting was hand-to-hand, was human against human. You know, there weren't in machines, there were tanks, there were planes, but not anything like the way they were in the Second World War, which much more of a sort of uh, machine-led war. Um, these were just uh, men deliberately sent out to be ammunition. I mean, that was what the whole Somme campaign was. Um, we just sent, sent men out to kill each other. And if we could kill more more of them than they could kill us, then we made it, um, you know, we, we could win the war. Um, and and I, I think, I think in a way, people more protected in the Second World War are still hideous and horrible like any war is. But this was just about men sent to the slaughter. It's not just about Harry the book either. It's, it's about his time, the Victorian and, and Edwardian eras, and even before his time, events like the Irish potato famine get a look in. We are now used to you delving into your past. I think there's another instalment of your diaries to come, and you've, you've told the tale before of Harry's dad, the unworldly Oxford academic who married a rich American, you know, shades of C.S. Lewis, I've always thought. And the Palins have actually entered the annals of history before too. And in 1651, Thomas Palin was of great service to the English king, Michael. Yes, I've known this for some time. Uh, Thomas Palin, P-A-L-Y-N, as he was known then, was a pupil of a man called Father Huddleston. And Father Huddleston was obviously a Catholic priest. Um, Charles was a Catholic prince. Uh, he'd been defeated at the Battle of Worcester. Uh, ends up in a country house owned by a Catholic, a Catholic family. And uh, Thomas Paley was one of three pupils of Father Huddleston who helped conceal um, the future King Charles II. Uh, <laughs> the story is that he was... He was concealed in an oak tree, but I'm not quite sure whether that's true or not. He was certainly concealed in the house, and probably because Catholics were good at hiding at that time, um, they, they, they found a secure place in the cellar of the house for him. But yes, Thomas Palin sa- helped save Charles II. I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> it's a good story. Um, it's a good story, yeah. Mm. Harry was a very small fish in a very big war, to borrow your phrase. But you, yeah. you've given him a great voice, even though his own voice was laconic, which actually adds to the whole mystery and intrigue of the narrative, actually. You've given him a voice. What would Harry think of this book? Um, I've thought of that. I, I mean, I think, I think he'd, be, he'd be terrified, really, <laughs> to see this, his face on covers all over the country at the moment and um, me talking about him as if I knew him. He'd probably say he's got it all wrong. <laughs> Not like that at all. I think he might have understood why, you know, I didn't become a, a sort of banker or a doctor or anything respectable. But ended up wandering through life doing Monty Python and ripping yarns <laughs> and going around the world with a camera and my shoulder sort of thing. Um, I think he might have got that. So in the end, I think we probably have got on well and he'd have had a wry smile at all this. Um, I don't think he'd have liked all the publicity. <laughs> no. I don't think he'd have liked to become an icon. But he was heroic, actually. He was a, a genuine hero of war, uh, a very brave man, and that comes through, and you've given him the words. I think it's lovely. 
You know, you just, oh, thank you. Yeah. You, you just alluded to your travel shows. I, I've read you say that people didn't love your travel shows because they want to travel. They loved them because they don't like traveling and you did it all for them. But I actually think you jest because there is what they call the Palin effect, isn't there? You single-handedly, I think, created the tourist surge in modern times to Machu Picchu, for example. Well, this is what they say. Now, I, I just qualify this not because I'm being sort of, you know, affectingly modest. It's just, I think Machu Picchu, for instance, was well visited anyway. Um, the Palin effect w- was coined um, when I did the Sahara series. And I think the thing there was that very, very few people bothered to travel to the Sahara because they felt there was nothing there, mm. which is the reason why I did the series in the first place. Because, you know... I, I, I couldn't believe that there was nothing there. This had been, you know, earlier times, great trading countries around the Sahara and all that. So I went to find out what there was to see and found that there was quite a lot to see. It was difficult uh, going. It was hard, hard moving, but um, you, you know, it was it was it was worth the journey to go to places like Mauritania and Mali that we hadn't heard about. And so I think um, a, a number of people did decide because of Sahara to go to these places that weren't visited um, and that became the Palin effect. Well you are the legendary traveller of our age I think. I know we've only I've only got you for another couple of minutes. Can I ask you some quick questions to close do you mind? No no please do yeah yeah. The pet shop in London you used once for the famous dead parrot sketch does it still exist? No it's probably deceased. God's got... meters make uh, <laughs> pushing up the dead. Almost certain there aren't that many pet shops left anymore. Uh, and it's a testament to you that so many people will recognise that line you just used. Did you ever decide on the greatest railway journey in the world? I've forgotten if you ever did. Um, no, I'm 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 not actually very wary of of making the best worst lists because there's always something you think about later and think, oh, that was wonderful. Um, but the best railway journeys, I mean, the ones I remember most of all, which was just extraordinary, was going from um, northern Chile across to Bolivia over the Andes. I mean, it went right up to about sort of 16,000 feet over the other side, then trundled down into La Paz. Uh, I mean, an unbelievable journey. Um, made better by the fact that once you got over into the Bolivian side, you were allowed to have a little sniff of coca, which they all they, <laughs> they all said combated altitude sickness. And it certainly combated almost every kind of sickness. Um, it was a disastrous journey. The, 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 the train became derailed just outside La Paz station. But it was absolutely, absolutely memorable. We could have written sort of, several volumes on that journey. <laughs> yeah, that's a good example you chose. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but if you were exiled from the UK or perhaps had been for blasphemy after the life of Brian, what would <laughs> yes. what would be your country of exile? Where would you live? Ooh, you mean apart from New Zealand? Um... <laughs> no, you can include us, you can include us if you like, I don't mind. Yeah. No, I I I that's a, that's a, it's a difficult one. I mean I probably would go somewhere English-speaking, which rules out Italy, which I'd go to for very, very many other reasons. So, um, you know, I, 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 if I can lump you together, I know I can't, but Australia and New Zealand, I, yeah, I feel at home uh, there.
which is always important, I think. And you might have grand schemes of uh, becoming sort of totally foreign. And, and I, I, I don't think I'd do that. I'd have to go somewhere which had a sort of um, uh, a history of connection with England. So Australia and New Zealand, yeah. No, uh, there, say that was, there are tons, um, tons of your fans here who make you feel at home too. You're very popular here. Uh, just the last question: Which of the Python crew have you stayed mates with in particular? Well, of course, my great mate was Terry Jones. Yes, and I, I really—I mean, we we spent a lifetime together, really, writing way beyond Python and after Python. Um, uh, and now, I suppose um, it's a difficult to say. Terry Gilliam is the person I'm most in touch with because he still lives in London. Um, but I get on fine with the others. You know, we all have our different views on things. Um, Eric, Eric and myself go back a long way to the Edinburgh Festival in 1964 mm. when we first met and we're doing undergraduate comedy then. And we have we have huge memories uh, going way back. And, and Cleese, of course, is the best person to perform material with, you can imagine. If you want to do comedy, do it with John. So, I mean... <laughs> But I think Gilliam, because of sheer proximity, we see each other in London more often, uh, would be the one that I would say I was closest to. I know you've got another travel show in Africa coming up. You'll never put your feet up, will you? I don't think so. I, I don't. I feel a bit vulnerable when I put my feet up. I put my feet up and I wonder what else everyone else is doing. Yeah. Those who've got their feet off the ground, what are they doing, <laughs> you know? Uh, and also, I just find, I, I mean, this sounds Pollyanna-ish, but I do find the world a wonderful place. And every day I look around and think I'm, I'm really lucky. I mean, today I'm in Edinburgh um, and it's a, a superb city. And I go back to London where I live and put my family there and all that. There's so much to enjoy that I feel I've got to keep going and 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 finding out things that, that um, will further enrich my life, really. I, I feel very, very lucky. Uh, boy. Bless. That's a lovely ending. Well, we're lucky to get hold of you, and I'll let you go, but thank you very much for being able to join us. Okay, Jim. Thanks a lot. Great pleasure. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. So, Michael Palin.